Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're going to look today at the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It's a familiar gospel to us and one that has a very, very strong message for us as well. But before we go into that, this gospel oftentimes, and in, well, always, is part of the gospel structure of the Sundays of Lent leading up to the Sunday, uh, to Palm Sunday, beginning of Passion Week. Um, because, and it is in a series. <clears throat> And the series is kind of an overall structure of the whole eschatological dimension of Christianity and the whole idea of the demand and the call for turning away from evil, turning toward good, and in so doing, striving after the realization of the fullness of the glory of the Lord, of his triumph of the of the eschatological end of the human pilgrimage, the human journey. So that it is a structural part of the liturgical use of the Gospels. And what happens, especially in cycle C um, for the Sundays of Lent, the Gospels began, first of all, with Christ's temptation in the desert. And there's two things in Christ's temptation in the desert. There's many things, but there's two that are particularly um, important for the structure of this series to make sense. One of them is, is that Jesus, on going into the desert to be tempted by Satan, is one, number one, he overcomes the failures of Israel in his own person. He, as the new Israel, as the new Jacob, as the new Abraham, as the new leader of God's chosen people, um, he shares with them the experience in the desert of the encountering of the evil one, and he overcomes them. And so he begins then a new relationship and a new chapter. He overcomes them by rejecting the compelling needs of the present moment in favor of the long-range vision of the uh, of what is of the well-being of humanity, of his own well-being as a human being, and uh, as somehow or other the reorientation of the whole covenanted people from being absorbed only in the present moment to having a great vision of the possibilities of the future. The second gospel in that series then picks up with the transfiguration, where the disciples catch a glimpse of the eschatological reality of Jesus, where they see him as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They see him also in glory, um, in a future condition, because Moses and Elijah are speaking about the exodus that he is to undergo in Jerusalem. So the crucifixion has not yet transpired, nor has the resurrection. And yet they catch a glimpse of the meaning of those things. In other words, they catch a glimpse of the end, of the purpose of overcoming the temptations and cutting themselves loose from being totally submerged only in the present moment. We go, of course, from from that gospel, from the gospel of the temptations, to where um, what we find 
is that Jesus then addresses the the question of the difference between private sin and corporate sin. And uh, he liberates individual people from being personally responsible for for causing the uh, the the troubles of of all humanity because of their participation in the in the accumulated corporate sinfulness of the human person, and he makes therefore a radical distinction between that which is the result of private sin and that which is the result of corporate sin. In other words, brings forth the need for the redemption of the community as a whole, and then he goes from there. And he goes into the story of both the merciful father, the prodigal son, and the elder brother who he uses as an example of the shallowness and the, and the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. He then moves into a much more personal situation, and that's what we find in John's Gospel today. So sin and redemption in, in, with an I toward the eschatological, toward the end times, is what the accumulation of these Gospels is supposed to prepare us for as we then enter into the story of the Passion, the Death, and the Resurrection of the Lord. In today's reading from John 8, 1 through 11, um, it is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And so it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at daybreak he appeared in the temple again. And as all the people came to him, he sat down and he began to teach them. So he has come down from from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley, up the stairs into the temple from the valley, and he is now teaching the people. When once again they arrive, the scribes and the Pharisees. And I think it's important for us to know, too, that it's just like John's use of the word Jews. Um, the use of the word scribes and Pharisees is not an all-inclusive term at all. It refers to a particular group of scribes and Pharisees, just as John's gospel refers to a particular group of the Jewish people, primarily and usually those who exercise positions of authority or power within the community. So they bring a woman along, they're dragging a woman along with them who had been caught committing adultery. We're not sure what that means or how that happens. And it's very interesting that the scribes and Pharisees have little or no interest in the man who was committing adultery. Um, And so, but they're making her stand there in full view of everybody, they say to Jesus. So here's what they're doing. However it was that she was caught in the act of adultery, they drag her through the main part of, through the temple area in front of everybody. And they take this human being who has sinned and they have made her an object of reproach because they have a point to prove with Jesus. So they're using a human person in order to do a one-upmanship with Jesus. And we know the scribes and the Pharisees are always trying to do a one-upmanship with Jesus. They're always trying to put him into a position where he has to choose a side which somebody else has already chosen so that they can put him into that kind of a category. And when they put him into that kind of a category, they can dismiss him as not one of their own. And, well, he's just another Pharisee, he's just another Sadducee, he's just another scribe, he's just another whatever, whatever the partisan party might be. 
And so they come up to him, and we, we've seen this before, you know, what is, the, we, the, what is the greatest commandment? And then we see it, you know, is it lawful to give money to Caesar? And all these kinds of things where they're trying to say, all right, take a position so that we can condemn you and assign you a role within the society, which we're having a very hard time doing because we don't know exactly where your place is among us. And so they come up to Jesus dragging this woman And they say, Master, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery, and Moses had ordered us in the law to condemn women like this to death by stoning. In doing this, of course, they're referring back to the law of Deuteronomy, I believe, in Deuteronomy, um, I think it's uh, Deuteronomy 22 is where I believe it really is. And... um, and uh, Deuteronomy 22, verse 23 and, and following. And so they're saying, you know, this, was in the, this is in the law of Moses. This is in the Torah. This is in the, uh, the first five books of the Bible. And so this is the law. And the law says that when a woman is caught committing adultery, she is to be stoned to death. We know, of course, that this was very much on the conscience of the people. And Jesus very much aware also that his mother could have very easily experienced the same kind of humiliation had Joseph been um, less compassionate, less understanding, and less open to be protective of her. For we read in Matthew's Gospel, Joseph thought of putting her away quietly, of divorcing her and putting her away quietly, in order to uh, protect her from the hardest edge of the law, which would have been if she were pregnant out of wedlock. That would have been, for them, an adulterous situation, and she could have been stoned to death. So Jesus has a, has a special reason to be very sensitive about what's going to happen to this woman. His mother was not an adulteress, um, but she would have been seen as such if Joseph had exposed her to the law. So they have no idea, of course, that they're coming very close to the person of Jesus and very close, very close to his human heart. And so they say to him, well, what have you to say? Now, they asked him this as a test, looking for something to use against him. Because if Jesus says, oh, yes, by all means, follow the law, then his talk about his talk about forgiveness, his whole parable of the prodigal son, his whole understanding and idea of the forgiveness of sin, all of that then becomes kind of a sham and in the public eye a mockery, something not to be taken seriously because here when he faces the real existential concrete situation, he is as harsh as anybody else. But they also know that if he says no, let her go, that he, they can then bring charges against him and say, see, we've told you that he ignores the, the, the law of Moses. He does not follow the law of Moses. He is not dedicated to the Torah. He is an insurrectionist. He is a dissident. He is a dissenter. Um, he is a troublemaker. And uh, the civil authorities should take a good close look at him. And after all, he really is from Galilee. And the Galileans are notoriously unsettled and, and, um, and in, in, when they come to Jerusalem, and they're oftentimes involved in minor skirmishes and minor insurrections and so forth, and he's one of them. And you can see this because here we presented him with a very clear case of the law of Moses, and he has just simply rejected it. So there Jesus was, and they were quite pleased with themselves, I'm sure, at once again at having found the situation where they feel that they can checkmate the Lord. 
and get him into deep trouble either with the people or with the authorities. But Jesus kind of ignores them. He doesn't show any interest in what they're doing, which has to have been very irritating for them. And so he's doodling in the sand on the ground, kind of simply bent over, maybe even sitting down and not even paying any attention to them. And so then as they continued their harangue, however, um, it says, as they persisted with their question, he looked up and said, is there anyone among you who has not sinned? Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Um, fascinating because there's a sociological phenomenon with all of this too. We hear, you know, we think of large cities. We think of, you know, New York and Washington, Chicago and and, and, you know, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, and so forth. Um, we can think of all of that. Um, and we have an idea, then, of kind of a rather large and almost anonymous population. However, Jerusalem, by our standards, was a pretty small place. And the people in the higher echelons of Jerusalem was a sm- pretty small crowd. And if any of you are familiar, and I'm sure we all are familiar with life in a very small community, what you began to realize is is that you know all sorts of things about everybody. That uh, in small towns, for instance, there are very few secrets. And uh, even in small, close-knit communities, there are very few secrets. And so when Jesus says, any of you who are without sin... These are older men, presumably, and who of them would have lived without sin and how many of them would have known each other's sins and would have known the dishonesty and the hypocrisy of anyone who said, no, I have never sinned, because they probably know most of the sins of one another. And so rather than expose themselves in the midst of this small community of people and uh, and maybe even the larger community of onlookers, um, they they can't pursue their intended goal because they would turn out to be hypocrites, liars, and everybody would know it. And if we also know in a small community, even if everyone does know it, as long as it's never said, then it's then people are pretty much safe to go on with their lives as they choose. Here, Jesus is calling them out to say publicly, to deny publicly about themselves something that everybody else knew already to be true. It was a clever ploy on his part and an effective ploy, but it was one also that, once again, he knew them better than they knew him, and he knew their game much better than they understood what he was doing. And so when he looks up at them and says, is there one of you who has not sinned? Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was forcing them to either be public hypocrites and liars or to sink back into the kind of anonymity where they could cover their sins and live respectably and privately with those things which were within their consciousness, within their mind, within their conscience. And once he said that, he didn't say it, you know, in a great triumphal kind of air of any kind. He must have said it in a certain kind of way offhandedly because then he bent down and he began doodling on the ground once again, saying, this whole thing is just so totally uninteresting to me that I hope you realize that I'm not paying a whole lot of attention to it, but that I did pay enough attention to it to call all of you out into the public arena 
and to expose you for who you truly are, unless, of course, you back away, and unless, of course, you leave this poor woman alone. And once they had gone away, and says they went away one by one, one, interestingly enough, beginning with the eldest, probably carrying the most baggage with him of uh, of a life that was less than perfect. Um, And Jesus remains then, once they leave, alone with the woman. And being alone with the woman, he looked up at her. Once again, he's not focusing on her. He's not heavily engaged in this whole big thing. He's still kind of doodling on the ground. And then he looks up and says, well, where are they? And uh, has no one condemned you? And you can see in his voice kind of a compassionate kindness, but also kind of a, kind of a, uh, uh, an edge as at the same time saying, well, haven't these people condemned you? After all, you know, they're the ones that dragged you here. And the woman said, uh, no one, sir. And so Jesus said something to her then that's very interesting, which often lends itself to misinterpretation and misunderstanding. He looks and says, and neither do I condemn you. Go away and sin no more. Jesus, we hear in the scriptures also, Jesus, the God does not wish the death of a sinner, but that they be converted and lived. He did not come to condemn, he came to save. The condemnation we do to ourselves, salvation is from God. The Lord allows us in our freedom to choose to be condemned, to choose to be separated from him in this life and in the next, if we so desire it but he does not in any way push us into it or force us into it. Instead, he says, he says to those who are in sin, um, go and sin no more. I am not here to condemn you. I am here to forgive you, to heal that which is broken inside of yourself, to heal that which is wounded inside of yourself, to heal that which has in some way, shape, or form torn away at the integral fabric of your soul. And so what he does then with her is he doesn't, he doesn't you know, spend time and counsel her or anything like that. He just says, I don't condemn you, so go, but do not sin again. And here's where it gets mixed up very often. People say, well, see, Jesus didn't even condemn the uh, the adulterous woman. No, he did not. But he did tell her to sin no more. And he did tell her to sin no more because she had been humiliated for what she had done. And her humiliation was something very public. And once again, in the smaller community of Jerusalem, when they find a woman who's guilty of, of adultery and they drag her into the most public place in the city and accuse her publicly of her crime, of her sin, chances are very much that everybody kind of already knew who she was. They already knew something about the story of her life. And that just as the scribes and the Pharisees who dragged her before Jesus were not willing to be exposed to the knowledge, the understanding, and the insight of the crowd, they had no problem whatsoever doing that with another person. And so in doing that with the other person, she has now been humiliated and disgraced in front of neighbors and friends, most certainly and most probably. Then when Jesus says, sin no more, 
This is the crux of the whole thing. Once again, placed in the eschatological structure of these gospel readings for cycle C in the season of Lent, which begins with overcome with temptation and the overcoming of temptation, the vision of the eschatological end, the purpose of the of the life that we lead as disciples, the story then of sorting out what sin really means in the human realm, watching it be operative in the story of the merciful Father and the prodigal son, watching the resistance to forgiveness, watching the resistance to mercy and goodness um, from the self-righteous, from those who have already extracted from their position what they want. They're not really looking for something more. The elder son obviously did not love the father, or had he loved the father, he would have rejoiced with the father. He certainly did not love his brother. And uh, and somehow or other, he was seemed to be in the whole thing for what he could get out of it. Um, just like the Pharisees were with, with Judaism in relationship with the Roman Empire and the Roman governors, that they had gotten their wealth, their position, their prestige, their power, all of that kind of stuff. They don't need anything else. They don't need to understand the goodness of God or the compassion of God. They don't need to be kind to other people. They don't need to allow other people the same kind of anonymity in the interior of their life as they desired, obviously, for themselves, for rather than be exposed for who they were, they slunk away into the crowd silently. And so when Jesus says, sin no more, this is the culmination then of this preparation for the passion of the Lord. For we have gone through the whole process then of watching the whole struggle, the whole relationship between between sin and forgiveness, and we have also seen the end goal of the Christian life. There is no such thing as an authentic Christianity which is merely ethical or merely behavioral. It has to be open to and oriented toward the eschaton, toward the end time, toward the coming, second coming of Christ, toward the glorification of Christ, toward, in fact, the salvation of humanity and the judgment on, uh, at the end of time. That that has to be woven into the Christian faith or it is no longer Christian. It is simply, perhaps, an ethical behavioral system based on some of the principles of Christianity, but not in any way a salvific movement or a salvific presence among the peoples of the earth. For it is simply um, altruism, in a sense, which is somewhat less than the kind of charity and generosity that the Lord asks of us. In relationship to this, this radical difference between altruism and the good works of the faith, I think St. Louise de Marillac was a a great example of this. She was the one who in the 17th century with with, uh, St. Vincent de Paul founded the Daughters of Charity. And the one admonition she would give the daughters as they would go out, spread out throughout, primarily in the beginning of the city of Paris, with the food and the clothing and the medicine and so forth that the poor of the city needed. And the poor in those days were truly abysmally poor in the unspeakable slums of the cities of the, of, of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And um, she told them, but whatever you do, as you take care of the people, do not be do-gooders. In other words, don't do this because it makes you feel good. And don't do this because you can say, like, you know, oh, what a good boy am I. Um, what, it, what it is, is do it for the love of others. And because God loves you, love others as he has loved you. If it is not an act of love, it is not 
Christian act. You can have an ethical act built upon Christian principles and behavioral act that built upon Christian principles, but in the last and final analysis, dig deep enough and you will find that the purpose for doing it is the person doing it themselves and not the recipient of the good that they have to offer. And and I think that when we understand then what Louise de Marillac, St. Louise de Marillac, was trying to instill within the Daughters of Charity was is that we approach the needs of others with the same kind of depth and the same kind of care and love that the Lord has done for us. And as we focus upon his suffering for our sake, his even becoming human for our sake, we have to realize and understand that we must give up and suffer for the sake of others out of human and divine love. And that anything less than that is an altruism, is a do-gooderism, which probably benefits the giver more than the receiver. And so it is here then when Jesus has already shown this over and over again and certainly has shown this in the story of the prodigal son. Now he says, now what this really means in the concrete is that we not only forgive sinners, but that we assist them in sinning no more in order that they can become full participants in the eschatological age for which all Christianity waits and hopes. I think that when we take these Gospels in the structure in which they're given to us, we can see it go from the Lord himself then to the whole question about the difference between private and corporate sin, and then we can see it in the overwhelming forgiveness, love, and mercy of God for the individual sinner, and and then we see it here very existentially buried within the everyday life of the world in a way that certainly we don't drag adulterous women or adulterous men into the public forum and demand their execution. Um, but we certainly are not in any way, shape, or form usually much afraid to condemn the bad behavior, the privately bad behavior of other people, um, instead of seeking ways for them to be healed of the sin that they commit, to be healed of the crime they have committed, and in that healing to move forward with the grace of God and with the support of ourselves or the local community into a greater inclusion, into the people of God who are committed to preparing the way of the Lord, who are committed to bringing with them as many people as possible into the triumphal march into heaven and the final day. So when we look at this Gospel of John and when we look at the story of the adulterous woman, let us also look in the mirror and let us also think about what Jesus did to the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are we to condemn, given what we have already ourselves been guilty of? And while there may be people who have never created, created a, committed a dramatic sin, one that was in um, dramatic violation of the law of God, the law of love, Um, we can see within the Pharisees and the scribes and in the elder brother of the prodigal son, those who seemingly without these kinds of sin live nevertheless a totally sinful life, for they live it for their own sake and not for the sake of others. For what they can extract out of their goodness, their goodness is somehow or other a means to an end for them. 
and that these people are not in any way free from the need for forgiveness, for confession of sin, for standing before the Lord and saying, in a way, no one condemns me, Lord, and Lord says to them, so neither do I, but go and sin no more. Let us open our hearts to receive this forgiveness from the living God in order that we ourselves then might be able to extend that in generosity and care for those who are trapped in the sinfulness and in the difficulties of the modern age. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.